Hello, everybody. I am Daniel Aaron, and I am delighted to welcome y'all to the Art of Vibrant Living. Super excited that today our guest, my guest, is David Life, and I'll tell you more about him in a moment. Um, and first off, importantly, thank you to our sponsor, Longevity Drops. And, well, David, um, you probably know him already if you know anything about the modern yoga world. He's one of the innovators, one of the most important teachers of our time. And um, he's done an incredible amount for the advancement and evolution of yoga. Um, my own gratitude goes a bit further because when I was a... Uh, a, a young yogi um, back when I was just getting into it and obsessed with it um, when I discovered David and his uh, partner Sharon and their method Jiva Mukti Yoga it, it really like blew me away as to what was possible with yoga um, I was personally a bit hooked on yoga already and had learned it largely as a as a physical practice and I knew there was a bit more to it though when I met um, David and Sharon and saw the the artistry with which they taught and the depth and the integration of the philosophical, um, which is, is part of what I hopefully will get into today also. It really opened my eyes and um, I'm, I'm super grateful to you, David, for what you brought to to yoga and for me personally for being such a great model of um, how to bring more to yoga and for me as a teacher, how to bring more to the students. So thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Daniel. I appreciate that introduction. I'm slightly blushing. <laughs> well, the, the fire in the background offsets any blushing, so that, that works out well. It's warming me up. I was just, uh, we got just got about eight inches of snow, so I'm out there moving it out of my way. Excellent. Well, I love that, um, I love that you, um, you know, you're you're far from a retired yogi, but from the years of living in, in New York City and being so uh, deeply immersed in the yoga scene, um, I, I like the image of you up there in upstate New York in the wilderness. And and even, I suppose, wilderness is some of what we're uh, talking about today in ways. Um, and for, for you all watching this show, the, the title is The Practice of Peace. And uh, as David and I were talking before, we came on live we we're saying how important it is that we make this really practical the practice of peace and um you know it's it's we're, we're in a time an era where there is so much uh conflict and division and pain and name blaming and you know like always violence um it seems to be accelerating and 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 for a lot of people there's there's a lot of fear about that so I think part of what um, part of what's amazing about yoga and part of what um, we can get in this is is how can we learn from these teachings and actually apply them and, and put the practice into our own life. Um, but before we go that into that though, David, would would you be up for um, telling our friends here a little bit about how you got into yoga yourself? I know it was a couple of years ago that you started. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it was a few years ago. Uh, actually, about uh, 40, 40 some years ago. Um, well, you know, it's hard to say when do you get into yoga. I think that those of us who are interested in yoga now probably have been interested in the past. 
meaning other lives, or maybe it, in earlier times in this life, what we were doing, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't called yoga, but it, there were some yogic aspects to it now looking back. Um, so, but in, in the form that yoga is appearing in the world today, I, my main interest started to happen uh, when I was about 30 years old in New York City, of all places, right? Who would have thought? Um, and uh, I felt something was missing from my life, and even though my life was quite full at that time. Um, I, I did feel that there were things that were missing and and uh, my first yoga teacher was a waitress at a cafe that I own. Her name was Tara Rose and she was uh, very generous in offering for me to come to her classes and she shared her knowledge very uh, generously and, and uh, I benefited greatly from that and I, I dove in um, quite deeply that another benefit of being in New York City is that there was a lot of yoga available. Many of the most famous teachers of the time, Master Angar, uh, Vishnu Devananda, Swami Satchidananda, they all came to New York City regularly and taught public classes and so my early <clears throat> studies was benefited greatly from the, the grace of those those wonderful teachers and and it was partly because I was living in New York City and not out here in the woods where I am now that uh, I was able to partake of those teachings. Um, I guess primarily the the old story is that I was interested in Sharon. Sharon had at the time a broken back, a broken vertebra in her back and Tara offered that her yoga classes might help Sharon um, learned to integrate with that injury and, and Sharon started going to classes and so then I, I followed along like the proverbial little puppy dog. And uh, although she, it was very easy and natural for her, it was a difficult, difficult road for me. I remember leaving many of those early classes crying and, and just, uh, didn't see very much hope for myself in that process. Very tight and, and tight in the body, but also tight in the mind. And uh, over time, the, that tightness was, uh, as yoga practices are wont to do, that tightness was broken through. And, and here I am, some 40 years later, um, uh, happy that those days are past. But I still, I look back with uh, fondness in those early times. Yoga was not popular then either, I have to say. Yoga was sort of the, the an area for losers of various types at that time. It was not the hip modern practice. <laughs> That's a cat. <laughs> it was not the hip practice that it is today. And uh, uh, so, but in, in many ways, uh, that made it easier for me to sort of blend with it because I, 
one thing I liked about New York City is that I was sort of an outlier and I was in a community of outliers in the Lower East Side. And uh, it was easy for me to sort of blend in with the yoga community and uh, find a, a place where I could make have it be extreme as I wanted it to be and as uh, ex perform my personal experiments in a in an atmosphere that uh, was not stifled in any way and so uh, I was glad to come to yoga at that point in time when it was not popular um, even in New York City mm. Well, I can certainly relate uh, on the level that when I started yoga, um, I, I, when I look back on it now, I think, you know, I won't actually I'll revise that when I started the physical practice of yoga, because I, I agree, it's uh, tricky sometimes to uh, say when yoga really started. And, and perhaps I'll say more about that in a moment, because I think it'll relate to our topic. But for me, when I got into the physical practice of it, uh, it was it was horrific. It was traumatizing for me. I was um, fat and stiff and I felt humiliated every class I went to. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, to me a miracle that I continued with it. Um, you know, there's, I guess there was just some little voice in me that knew that there was something worthwhile or important about persisting. Um, yeah. Well, and, and maybe, you know, actually I'll jump back now um, and perhaps segue into my next question for you. Um, how when i when i look back in my life and i think about when i got into yoga um, it was for me it was really out of a philosophy class my first year of college when i was studying about animal rights and um, i had to write a paper and i thought well you know scientific testing on animals that's an interesting topic and and i i love animals and it doesn't seem right to me that um, scientists get to do all this experimentation on them and nobody's asking them if that's okay and um, you know, that was the, 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 the conclusion I'd drawn before I started doing the research. And what I came across in my research was article after article about vegetarianism, which um, I was completely not interested in. I, you know, I ate the standard American diet. I ate meat at least twice a day. And, um, and yet I was in this ethics class and I'd studied logic and, um, you know, and I read these papers and I thought, well, you know, it, it makes sense. I can't really argue with that. It is a more ethical way of living is to not eat animals, not participate in their killing. And nothing changed for me for a, a couple months after I drew those conclusions. And then, then there was an epiphany at one point and, and it completely fell away for me, the eating of meat. And when I look back about at my life now, and that was when was that, um, 30 something years ago, I, I think that was the moment when I, when I had that epiphany, when I stopped eating meat, that there was, it was like a crack in the windshield. And from there, as soon as there's that first crack, then, you know, there's a spider web rippling out. And it took me a few years after that to discover, um, yoga asana, the physical practice. And, and even a couple of years after that, to actually get the link between um, the practice of peace and what we think of as the yoga practice now. And it was really um, one of the gifts you gave me. You, you may not even know this. Uh, back when I first started 
studying with you and Sharon was the way you all taught about the practice of peace, what in yoga we call ahimsa, uh, and how it relates to yoga and how it's part of the yogic teachings. And when I got into, uh, when I became vegetarian in college, I became a zealot. I became a missionary for it um, to the point that I ostracized nearly everyone I knew to the point where I would walk into the dining hall and, you know, sit down at a table and people would leave the table because they're like, oh, no, he's going to go on one of his rants again. And, you know, I, I stopped just short of, um, you know, throwing red dye on people in the demonstration. But I did make paper mache cows. Um, in any case, um, you know, I, I know this is an important um, topic for you and in the Jiva Mukti method. Um, what... Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is this long intro to my question, something that I really appreciated in the way you all taught about this practice of Ahimsa and the way it comes from Patanjali, the Yoga Sutra author, that it's, it's not necessarily something that you should do. It's not moral. It's actually something that if we practice this, if we practice peace, then there are benefits that come directly to us. Um, does that make sense? And, and could you say more about that? Sure, yeah, I can say a lot about that. <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> um, you know, I will, I'll, I'll add though, in terms of my yoga journey, um, not 40 years ago, but 50 years ago, when I, when I went into college, I was, uh, that was during the Vietnam War, and so I was uh, an objector to the Vietnam War, and I read a lot of things about nonviolence and participated in a lot of nonviolence and also violent uh, protest of the war. And uh, that was sort of a, a big and important learning phase for me. Uh, I became quite uh, resolute about the importance of uh, not fighting against war with the tools of war and uh, and became well established i think in in the techniques and the uh, uh, techniques of, of Martin Luther King has had adopted in the in the fight against segregation the techniques of, of Mahatma Gandhi and the and Indian uh, movement for for independence um, and I studied those things a lot together with philosophy also in, in college. But I, I didn't practice yoga. I tried a couple of yoga classes and they were really boring and uninteresting to me. Uh, I found them to not have anything to do with my life and the reality of my life. Just a little bit. I really didn't start practicing yoga then. I just tried a couple times. So, but, uh, uh, long story short, I, I uh, managed to escape the Vietnam War and uh, through various means. And um, later on, years later on, when I moved to New York City and started to experience yoga and started to learn something about the philosophy of yoga, uh, uh, these early uh, seeds started to ripen, the seeds of Nonviolent, uh, um, nonviolent demonstrations and the seeds of the words of Martin Luther King and so many other people 
started to ripen inside the uh, support of the yoga philosophy. And so <clears throat> really, I think that was part of what drew me to yoga, even though I didn't know it at the time, I had some uh, inkling that there was something in yoga about that there was something of these principles of ahimsa and principles of, uh, of nonviolence that that uh, drew me to yoga. I was a vegetarian before I found yoga. I was a vegetarian because I was a hippie. And that's why I tried yoga, because that's what hippies did. And uh, so uh, then when I, I found that yoga had uh, a structured philosophical school of philosophy, a perennial school of philosophy that supported these ideals in my life, and not only that, but a practical approach for realizing the truth of these ideas in the methods of yoga, uh, which is an unusual part of yoga philosophy. It's a practical philosophy in that it gives you the tools and the methods for uh, incorporating the ideas and the philosophy into your, your cellular structure, into your nervous system which so many philosophies, you know, it starts in the head and it stays in the head. And that can be a very frustrating experience for someone who knows that the intelligence of a being is not just in the head, it's in every cell of that being. And so yoga <coughs> methods have a way of, of putting the, the philosophical ideas in a practical way right into your nervous system. And so when I experienced that and the clarity it gave me, uh, that is mainly why both Sharon and I began to teach yoga. It's not because it, in no way did it represent a career, a good, a smart career choice at that time. As I said, it is the pre-popularity of yoga. This is before there were such things as yoga mats and yoga clothes. Um, and so we saw this is providing a wonderful platform for what we thought was really something that could make a change in our world and in the world in that we experienced together here in America, but also the world at large was to change human beings' relationship to the earth and to the other beings that we share the earth with. If we were to say what is the underlying problem for all the abuse that we see in the world, where all the disagreements, it starts with a disagreement <clears throat> with the idea that we are earthlings and that, that we, are, we have grown out of the earth itself. Uh, some idea that human beings are a special lot that landed here uh, from somewhere else and that, uh, and because of that, it's our job to use up the earth while we're here and to, to make waste of it and get out of here before it, before it all blows up. That seems to be the common denominator for how human beings interact with the earth these days. They interact from a basis of control and for, from abuse. So if we look into the animal kingdom in general and definitely into the, the animal kingdom of the animals that we choose to uh, harvest for food 
and for all the things that we do, entertainment and so forth, um, it's based on, a, it's predicated upon an abusive relationship, a control relationship. That's why people want dogs to obey them. It's an idea of control and mastery. That's why people put saddles and bridles on horses. That's because a horse running free without human interference is seen as not useful to humans. That's why humans dam rivers because a river running free and wild is not useful unless you dam it and, and get electricity out of it. That's why human beings cut down forests because a forest is really not useful to a human being unless you can turn it into paper or, or uh, lumber or other wood products. And so our whole relationship with the earth is based on this. And yoga means becoming one, joining together. It means we become one with the forest, one with the rushing river, one with the rushing, the, the running Mustang that is free and happy, one with the dog whose who's, uh, real uh, family is its pack. And um, we begin to feel that as worthy in and of itself. And so we try to teach this through the yoga practices and make it real through the methods of yoga. All those yoga asanas aren't named after animals just because it makes a better kids yoga class. It's, it's about how to mend our relationship with dogs and mountains and trees and uh, fish and alligators and everybody else. All the other earthlings. Yeah, um, I'm with you. And Okay, that's great. I love what you said. And I, I want to ask you, um, I am asking you, how, how do, you know, the, I think there's, there's no one certainly uh, uh, on, on this viewing or, or probably in the world who would say, uh, I don't want peace. I, you know, I want to have a world that has conflict and hate and war. Um, and yet that's what we have in our world we you know have had forever um and there are some of us that uh, continue to believe that there is something else possible and so the, the question and actually i'm going to um ask it but then i'm going to pause so you can have a moment to uh sit with it if you want um is um you know what what's going on and how can we change that what how do we take uh, those ideals and actually apply them in our lives? And I'll, and I'll pause for a second to um, say thank you to Longevity Drops, um, which in some ways relates to what we were talking about earlier. David was saying that he's been um, learning about the, the fungal world and the medicinal mushrooms, of which there are many in the wilderness. And that's one of the great powers of this kind of herbal medicine is it um, well, one is it obviously it benefits our health and we get a lot of um, upliftment and vitality from it. Um, and, and I love about the, the formula here that it's a bunch of tonic herbs, which means that when they come in, they will balance us out. If we need more energy, they'll bring it. If we need more relaxation, it'll bring that. Part of what I love about it, similar to what you were saying, David, about the, um, the asana being named after animals, is that when we get... Uh, essentialized nutrients from nature 
um, it brings us in closer contact with nature and it uh, brings us back to our own nature. And some of the ingredients in longevity drops are Hoshu Wei and Sustantia, but also cordyceps mushrooms and chaga mushrooms, which must uh, grow on the trees up there near where you are. Um, and, and I love about the longevity drops that, um, you know, my friend David Wolf is uh, a purist um, and also uh, similar, similarly devoted to Ahimsa. And he creates it in such a way that it's very high quality with uh, coconut glycerin rather than alcohol. Um, very easy to use. A drop, uh, dropper full in the morning, dropper full in the afternoon. I love it. It actually tastes good. My daughter loves it, 10 years old, which is even better, getting her to have medicine that she loves. So thank you to Longevity Drops for sponsoring the show. And all that said, I'll go back to my question, David. Um, how can people, um, you know, apply the what we all know, this, this idea of their lives? Well, I think, uh, I think, you know, we all have our issues. You spoke about something. You're speaking about you can't imagine anyone that doesn't wouldn't be in favor of peace and yet they they must exist because we've had uh, certainly our whole lifetime has been continuous war and for most uh, all of human history there have been wars and I think when you whenever I mean if we could say that our practice or our, our road toward peace is away from war and we want people to turn that direction, we need to ask ourselves, well, who is benefiting from this war? And it sort of goes without saying that war is good business. It makes good business sense. And uh, during wartime, uh, wartime businesses thrive. And, uh, and another thing, you know, I've just been rereading 1984, this book by George Orwell. And at that, in that book, uh, the many countries that we know are consolidated into four very large uh, countries and they're in con continuous state of war. And one of the reasons they prefer that state of war is that it keeps the populace in a state of fear, which is also good for business because the cure for fear is shopping. Uh, our own president told us the day after 9-11, please go shopping. And I'm sure many people did. And they f maybe it put the, the tragedy of the situation out of sight and out of mind for them when they bought some new technical gadget or, or some item of clothing. So we have, to, we have to be, from a very practical point of view, we have to know that war is is good for business from a lot of point of view, from very many points of view. It's good for government who wants to keep their citizenry shopping and in a state of fear and in control. Again, just to use our own government as an example, uh, I'm not sure that they still do, but they used to have, uh, they would color their day with different degrees of terrorist threat. I can't remember, yellow, orange, red. I don't even remember them now. Maybe they still do that, or maybe it fell by the wayside. But uh, I know that uh, that served a, a, um, many purposes on many different levels. And certainly one thing it did is keep the citizenry in a state of, uh, 
of fear. Um, so I think that for people to begin to bring a reality of shanti, a reality of peacefulness into their life, they have to start with their own organism, with their own nervous system. In other words, you have to make peace a reality of, of your own being. And then you radiate that peace outward. You can't be a, an angry, uh, vengeful person, angry about there not being enough peace in the world, vengeful about trying to create peace, and think that you're, you're making the world a better place. You must incorporate fully and completely this peacefulness inside yourself and then allow that to begin to affect the world around you in a, in a very real way. Affect your family first and foremost. Affect your, uh, your friends uh, next and then your, you know, your, your larger uh, uh, local community. And gradually, gradually, you aren't going to, never going to defeat war from the top down, um, uh, except by making another war to end the previous war, which is, is, again, that's like, uh, that's ignorant action. So yogis like to take, uh, take very specific action toward creating a peaceful environment inside their own being and then allowing that to then have a profound effect on the world first close at hand and then uh, as it as it has its it manifests into the larger world uh, it comes from a place of peace so in order to do that again you have to use the the age-old techniques meditation um, breathing um, contemplation um, all the techniques of yoga, asana practice, um, these things will begin to create, uh, they'll, they'll take away the war that's inside. And when you can bring that peace inside yourself, when you operate into the world from a place of peace, it's completely different than if you operate into the world from a place of anger or resentment or dissatisfaction with things the way <clears throat> that's another very important point in yoga is that the yogi tries to have detachment from the fruits of their action so i could say for example that that uh, i'm going to talk to everyone about the ben benefits of a vegan lifestyle uh, but i'm going to talk to them from the point of view that I want them to become vegan. So that if they don't become vegan after what I say, then I'm going to become very angry and very disenchanted with the possibilities of talking to people about it at all. My actions in the world will start to be colored by that dissatisfaction with the outcome. So an important aspect of a yoga practice, and again, the yoga methods in a very practical way to make this real in your life you start to dissociate with the results of your actions and just concentrate on doing perfect action now perfect action is we could define it in many ways but one way to define it is an action that doesn't uh, take away the freedom 
of any other being or doesn't impose on any other being in any way that is uh, negative. That includes the beings who you don't agree with the way they live their life. So that your, again, your actions, the words you choose to say, the actions you choose to take in the world come from a place of no expectations. I'm gonna talk about veganism and the importance of it in the world. The importance of becoming, again, a, a healed earthling who has good relationships with the whole world of wildness. And, and uh, if you choose to, to uh, change the way that you consume the world, if you should choose to change your, the way you view the world, good. But if you choose not to hear those words, that's all right also. That's not going to stop me from talking about veganism. Because I talk about veganism from a place of peace and with, uh, I have renounced the fruits, any fruits of talking about that. Just like I've renounced the fruits of my yogic actions in every other way. Then, then I'm a, a free one. And this practice, all these things we're talking about, the end goal should be freedom. It shouldn't be bondage. That's what everyone wants to be free. Everyone wants to be happy. That's for sure. Even the ones selling the machine guns and the bombs. Uh, though they're making a good profit selling those machine guns and those bombs. They still, in their heart, they want to be free and they want to be happy. Um, and it's our job to educate them about ways to do that, uh, where they can turn their, uh, not turn those machine guns and those bombs into plowshares, because that also is wreaking violence in the, in the earth today. Uh, what we've done with the plowshares is, is wreaking a whole different level of violence on the ecosystems and the and the uh, peaceful prairies of the earth that have existed in the past. So um, it's, a, it's a continuous sort of review of, of our feelings and our assessments of the world around us. Uh, whenever you see a situation that you think needs to be changed, um, you have to ask yourself who's profiting from this. And then you have to turn your attention toward them and start to care for them, start to grow them up. We talked about this before, that it's important not to approach uh, these changes that you would like to see happen, whether they're political changes or changes in people's uh, daily lives, the way they consume and eat food and the way their the relationships inside their family or inside their community. Uh, you have to grow them perhaps from an ego-centered childish kind of experience into a more uh, a relational experience to family and friends and then even into a broader like you could say a global experience and then in the end to integrate all those together so that uh, you don't lose a sense of of individual self you don't lose a sense of family you don't lose a sense of, of larger community. You don't lose a sense of your, your religious group, but you grow it into a, a world-centric view that integrates all those together.
I could go on and on. You gotta like uh, jump in there. <laughs> well, that's that's great what you said, and I think I mean I'll I'll, I'll um, reiterate and summarize a couple of pieces. Um, I think you bring up a really good component that we sometimes forget, which is that um, there is a machinery or an agenda that um, that benefits from conflict and war, and while our best resource toward that may be creating peace within ourselves and in our, you know, our smallest communities and expanding out. Um, it's also useful to realize that and know that there is, um, there are, there is somebody that's benefiting from it. And, and what you said about, you know, the practice for us is to see how we can create peace in, in ourselves and in our families and in our friendships and in our business relationships. And, um, that is, uh, it's, I think it's worth mentioning that that's, um, that's a tall order. It's an important order, and, uh, and I'm confident that it's a doable order. Um, and part of the, I think, what could be helpful for a lot of us is to realize, well, you know what, we are so indoctrinated and conditioned into this uh, idea of going against or fighting or having anger and anger being okay to, to sort of throw out onto other people that it really takes a conscious effort to uh, a real dedication to live in a different way and you know i know from my experience i've been uh, you know very consciously devoted to this ideal for 30 something years and on a daily basis i still slip up with that whether it's you know with my daughter or a friend and i find myself reacting or going against something and um, you know i think for all of us it's important to to realize that that's part of the process and also not create a againstness on ourselves with that um because anytime we're getting into the you know i'm dedicated to peace and those people over there that are um, warmongers right then then that's equally you know because we all have that um those components of ourselves um and you call it the blaming and complaining syndrome yeah say more can't fall into that blaming and complaining it doesn't <clears throat> doesn't lead to a productive place never does never has yeah yeah and you know what you said about um uh, awakening people or growing them up um, reminds me of um, you know the, the the famous last lines of jesus forgive them for they know not what they do um is equally uh, applicable for ourselves to say, you know, forgive myself. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what came over me in that moment. Um, and yeah, Dalai Lama says uh, that the way to peace is through universal responsibility. So rather than blaming others, what you say when you see something you don't like, you say, this is my fault. And if you take blame for it yourself, it means you are also empowered to do something about it. But if you're just blaming others, it, it just doesn't help create a, a um, positive impact in the situation. It's just confrontational. You know, we talked about early roots of getting into yoga. One of my early roots was through martial arts. <clears throat> and in uh, um, many of the martial arts, there's an idea that you don't, um, you will never win through confrontation. You will never 
overwhelm opposing forces with by opposing them with uh, equal fierceness. But instead, what you learn to do is you learn to use them against themselves. You learn to turn energy, and it really is energy work. You learn to turn the energy of their, of their disagreeable nature back onto themselves. Without, uh, and, and if they stop uh, being disagreeable, then the fight is over. There's no reason to exact vengeance or revenge. Um, uh, it doesn't make sense in this context because you're just becoming your own worst enemy. <clears throat> That's why so much of what's going on today in the world, you know, uh, there's so much that's based not only on blaming and complaining, but on that's not enough that people want revenge uh, for whatever wrong they feel has been done to them. And they're not satisfied until they somehow exact that revenge in whatever way they feel they can, they can get it. And, uh, and that's never a way to achieve the kind of goals that we say we're working for. Um, for example, I'll use Martin Luther King again as a, as a good example of someone who overcame an obstacle that was uh, <clears throat> filled with violence, violence against black people, uh, and the institution, the institutionalized segregation and separation uh, and uh, making black people into second-class citizens in America. He never chose, every time he was given the option of violence, he never chose to use that because he saw that violence as something that he was opposing, not as a tool that he could use against his opposition. And so many years later, I'm, I know so much work that remains to do, but a, a basic level of recognition of that old system being wrong and the institution of a new system of equality uh, has only come through the insistence, uh, even in the face of, of uh, the personal possibility of your life being ended by others, uh, even in the face of that, to still insist on the integrity of the approach if you want peace, you have to be peace. If you want peace in the world, you have to be that peace yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's my, my constant uh, inspiration, this man, who from, uh, from birth to grave in this lifetime, he, he maintained the integrity of those views. And, and it's because of that, that equality as it stands has been achieved. Um, if he'd used tactics of violence, I don't know where we would be today. Maybe in a more repressed condition, even. Um, I'm with you. Um, he, I, I just learned recently, actually, I didn't know this, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. One of the things he did was he actually trained, um, he trained the people that were part of the movement to work on their own anger and anger responses. Um, you know, and, and that kind of uh, 
what we often think of as venting, you know, like, oh, I, you know, I'm really angry and I'm just going to, you know, go over here and yell. Um, he actually trained the people that were part of the movement to not vent um, and to be able to stay peaceful with the anger that would naturally come up. And, I mean, you know, imagine for us to imagine somebody calling us horrible names or spitting in our face or slapping us in the head um, and to stay peaceful and not reactive to that um, is phenomenal. And, well, you know, I think this, uh, maybe this will be my last question for you, David. Um, you know, when I think about the advances we've made in in race, and there certainly have been some, and we certainly have a ways to go, and um, in gender equality or feminism or women's rights, um, and, you know, we're on another precipice of that right now, um, and in the... Uh, 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 gay and lesbian movement, we've certainly made advances, um, you know, and, and, and I have some optimism from all of that. And, and I still look at the way we treat animals, what we might call speciesism, and it seems like that's a long ways to go. And, and I, you know, I set for myself the goal, I'm sure inspired by you and Sharon in many ways, years ago that what I want to achieve in this lifetime is where uh, animals being treated as other or inferior or killed um, is something of the past, just in the way that segregation became something of the past. What, do, what would you say about uh, the possibility? Am I deluded? Do you think that's not going to happen? Um, is it possible? Do we have hope? <laughs> well, <clears throat> from the point of view of the detachment I was talking about, it doesn't matter. What are you going to choose to do in your life? That's what matters. You can choose to be a good person and to uphold these ideas of equality and, and, uh, and kindness and compassion, or you can choose to be a bad guy. If you knew that it wasn't going to work, would you just choose to be a bad guy because you knew it wasn't going to work? I don't think so, Daniel. I think you're a good guy. And I think that you would stay a good guy even if you, uh, if you knew for some crystal ball reason that this wasn't going to work the way you just hoped it would, uh, you would still act with the same amount of integrity. And so that's the important, that's the critical juncture, the critical decision. Can you have enough detachment about, uh, about the actions that you take so that you don't just like... Uh, shove the cat rudely away from in front of the computer, but just, she wants to participate. She likes what I'm saying. Uh, she's put in, in her vote. Um, you know, recently I was, gave a sh real short program to a group of people who are the least likely to respond well to the message of, of veganism. It seems that way. Uh, and it was a, a a program where we presented first the movie um, uh, Cowspiracy, which I'll recommend to everybody, and the new movie by Chief Mukti Yoga student Kip, uh, uh, What the Health, equally a great movie. But Cowspiracy emphasizes the connection to the environment and uh, animal agriculture, something Cape Town has to take to heart these days, where they're running out of water. In any case, we presented that movie, which is filled with a lot of facts and figures. 
And after the movie, I gave a few comments together with some other people. And I looked at everybody in the audience, which was pretty conservative, um, probably mostly in their 60s, your age category who've been eating meat their whole life and been on a different path than me. I said, uh, you know, this changing your diet is going to be very difficult for you. I said, first of all, you're addicted to these foods, the dairy and the meat. It has an addictive quality to it. It changes your brain chemistry in a way not dissimilar from hard drugs. And you will have to go through a withdrawal period. I said, also, you have many uh, emotional associations with the way you eat. It was the way you ate with your parents and your family in your growing up times. And so you need to create a, a, a path for yourself that involves having compassion for yourself and to work on this project a step at, the, at a time. And they reacted like really favorably to my, my communicating in that way, rather than coming at them with more facts and figures, more judgment, more uh, um, accusations of them being the problem. First of all, I assumed that they were going to change their diet. I didn't argue the fact. And I told, proceeded to tell them why it was going to be really hard, but that they should do it in any case, that it was worthwhile. And the movie made all the facts and figures and all the good reasons to change diet apparent. I didn't have to go over that again. What I needed to do was to try to create a relationship with these people relationship based on trust and on coming from a non-judgmental place, but at the same time relationship coming from knowledge that a parent might show a child that we're going to, I'm going to grow you up in this new idea of the world. And the reason I want think it's important is for your children so that they could have a different kind of a world to grow up in. And all that made sense to them. And I think, <clears throat> If all of our efforts fail, if, which they aren't failing, more and more people are, are turning to a, a, a vegetable-based diet in the world, but let's say that something happens and it, and it goes wrong, it's not gonna change what I talk about. Instead, I'm gonna say that's my fault for not having skill, skillful means in the past, for not being able to express these ideas in a way that opens up other people to the idea rather than closing them down. And so I think uh, uh, what we have to do, what all your listeners have to do is work on, uh, first of all, embodying that peace through the tools of meditation and, and good diet and all the things that we are doing uh, reading and studying um, to to bring ourselves into a higher state of vibration and and then to begin to uh, in a peaceful way to radiate that that confidence and that feeling into the world around us and to do the things that we do because they're the right thing to do and to encourage others to do the same Absolutely. Well put. 
and it's it's a good reminder too i'm glad you said it that um that there really has been a lot of progress and i forget that sometimes it's easy to to look at how much um how long there is to go in a way if um if there is a place to go to um and it is really phenomenal you know since uh, in the last 30 40 years just the awareness around um caring for animals and plant-based diets for whatever the motivation um it's pretty tremendous the uh the advances we've made so david i really appreciate your um well, you're being here, but also you're, um, you know, 40 something years of dedication to this. And, you know, I've, I've known you for a long time and I've really seen how your own practices have resulted in greater and greater peace and equanimity and kindness in you. And to be a model for all of us for, well, the, the benefits that come. Uh, I, I love again what, what Jesus said, the, um, it's, it's the peace that passeth all understanding. And from the mind perspective, to look at all that's going on in the world, you know, some would look at uh, look at you, look at us, and say, you know, how can you be peaceful in the midst of all this? And it does go beyond the understanding that the mind's dualism, um, and yet for you to have done all that you've done and be radiating that and sharing with us um, is a is a real gift. So thanks for all the work, and thanks for being here with us okay thank you daniel for having this show hey um i feel blessed to have the opportunity thanks again to longevity drops for sponsoring us thanks to tom for putting it all together for us um y'all i am daniel aaron it's the art of vibrant living hey next week by the way i will be live with parashakti sigalit who is an incredible teacher a bright eagle spirit and um founder of Dance of Liberation, and we got some great stuff to share on Valentine's Day. And with that, thanks everybody. Thanks, David. See you soon. Peace it is.